chose it. It wasn't like I chose it with, uh, uh, you know, with so much time in advance. I chose it right before. I just did that because I wanted to be able to illustrate to you a methodology of looking at halakha that will help guide you. Since we're not going to be able to cover as much ground, maybe as we did in the previous years, next year we'll be able to cover much more. This year, a little bit less. So at least I can give you, hopefully, or, or um, introduce you to some tools that are useful in understanding any halachic subject. And if you approach it this way, you can find other nuggets like this all over the place. You just have to be looking at them, looking for them. If you're looking for them and you're asking the right questions, you discover a lot. So I gave um, another uh, topic. I mean, again, I just kind of picked two random topics that start at the beginning of Masachet that I felt are two topics where when you look at the surface level of the halacha, it's very not you know not especially uh exciting not especially captivating and maybe a little bit difficult to understand but these are the kind of difficulties that we sweep under the rug very quickly and yet if you look at it a little more closely i think you'll see that there's a lot more depth to it than we would have expected i hope that you'll see and i hope that uh that things come across because you know like i said i don't normally um whenever we learn together i don't really like uh prepare like a shiur to give you. So I don't, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't bake the, um, you know, how when they, I don't bake the ideas fully and then present it to you. I kind of like have a sense of what I think is going on in the area. And then as we talk it out, you know, we go in the direction that we go and hopefully the ideas develop and they come out clear. Um, I'm relying on you. So uh, I, I kind of threw out some sources that uh, that I thought tied together into some kind of a pattern, but it's more intuitive. It's not really um, an exact science. So, um, okay. So what, what I wanted to, to talk about really was the, um, the issue of declaring a fast. And I find it very interesting. And I hope that you also will. It's found in Yud Aleph Amud Bet, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 lines from the top of the Yud Aleph Amud Bet. Like I said, we're instead of going straight through, we're doing sugyot or we're doing topics. Okay, so the topic is kabbalat ta'anit, accepting a fast. And you know, let's try to sharpen our sense of what kind of questions we can ask, and never feel like a fool to ask questions that seem to be well. Somebody must know the answer to this because it's too obvious of a question. Because I think yesterday when we learned, we realized that just asking like. Why is it even necessary to start saying on a holiday? Why can't it just be any day? Why, you know, that question itself opened up a whole world of insight that we're able to mine from the connection between and Sukkot. So here we have Amar Rabbi Amar Yachid Shekibel Alav Tanit, Afilu Achal Tanit, a Yachid. Meaning if you accept upon yourself a personal fast, which a person is allowed to do, of course, you accept upon yourself a personal fast, even though you ate and drank all night long, in the morning you can say tefillat ta'anit. Now that's true about public fasts also, obviously, shivasar betamuz, asra betevet, when we, we eat all night long and yet in the morning it's still a fast day, right? Correct? So this halacha really doesn't seem to say anything, but uh, okay, because it's something that applies on every fast day. So what is the, what the chidush is? We don't know. Now, lan betanito, e no mitpalil shil ta'anit. What does that mean, lan betanito? 
It means, let's say a person fasted for the day and at the end of the day, they said, you know what? I'm not feeling really very hungry. So uh, I'm just going to keep going and power through till tomorrow. He doesn't say anenu the night after the fast, even though he's still fasting. Even if he decides to fast all the way through the next day, he doesn't say anenu. Why? Because he didn't accept upon himself uh, that fast. Right? So that's what lan betanito means. So what is he trying to set up here? He's trying to set up basically a, uh, a contrast that from the pers- when you accept the fast upon yourself, even though you don't immediately, uh, uh, you don't immediately um, start observing the fast because the whole night after your Kabbalah Ta'anit, you are allowed to eat and drink. And yet the next day you're considered to be in a fast. So when it comes to, uh, on the other side, when you did accept the fasts, right? Um, you, uh, so meaning even though you accepted a fast, you, your fast doesn't start right away. And yet you say you're eating all night and all day in between when you accepted the fast and now, and yet, and, and when you're actually fasting, and yet you can say that after the fast, right? After the fast, you're in the middle of the fast. You haven't eaten yet. You haven't eaten yet. And yet you can't say tanit because you're not technically observing the fast anymore because the fast ended at sunset then you you kept going because you're uh, you're macho or whatever right you decided to continue now um, and and it happens to be true that a lot of times after a fast you don't really feel that hungry anymore because you kind of like uh, you know your stomach uh, contracted and whatever so the person might want to continue going and 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 it wouldn't be considered a fast so that's what Rabbi Zeira tells us that's Allah that he introduces to us now the thing is um and then the Gemara gets into a discussion about Tani Chaot. But the question is like this. What is the chidush of this halakha, the first halakha and the second halakha? Neither of them really make much sense at all. Why? Because, um, because the first halakha, yeah, I accepted a fast for tomorrow during the day. So why would it make one bit of difference that I eat and drink in the intervening nights? I accepted a fast for tomorrow. So what did I, we do that on every fast. We also eat and drink the night before. Every fast except for Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, we eat and drink the night before. So why is he making such a big deal that, oh, even though you accepted the fast yesterday, you know, let's say you accept the fast today. For me, it's already evening. But let's say you accept the fast this afternoon for tomorrow. Of course, you're not going to fast at the nighttime. You accepted the fast for tomorrow. Why would I think that the fact that you eat and drink it during the nighttime has anything to do at all with your fast tomorrow? We, we do that all the time. The whole um, Jewish day, which starts at nighttime. So you say, I'm going to fast the, the, the first of uh, whatever, um, Adar. Right. Whatever. The third, you can't. The third of Adar. So you would think the third of Adar starts, uh, starts at nighttime, right? So. Now that the Gemara is you, if you ate the whole night on the third of Adar, don't worry, your fast is intact from the third of Adar day, because really the fast starts the day. Right, but if you decided to fast the whole 24 hours, you could. Right, meaning meaning it's like a situation, because if I included the nighttime in my fast, then of course I can't uh, eat and drink in the nighttime. And if my intent wasn't for the nighttime, so then why is it such a big chidush? I'm allowed to eat and drink during the nighttime. We do it all the time. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, it doesn't seem to add anything because if the fast included the nighttime and that was my intent when I made, when I accepted the fast, so then obviously I can't eat in the nighttime. And if the fast didn't include the nighttime, so then uh, why is it such a big deal that I ate at the nighttime? We do that all the time. 
right? That, that's what I'm saying. And on the other hand, let's say the guy on the other side decides to extend his fast, right? So the guy fasted for the third of Adar, like you said. And then the day ends and he's like, you know what? I'm going to do, I'm going to be like the time of Mordechai and Esther. I'm going to fast uh, another day, uh, consecutive two more days, whatever. So why can't that guy say Tfilat Ta'anit? He's having a lot more intense Ta'anit than the guy that uh, only fasted one day. The guy that only fasted one day is uh, is able to say Anenu, even though he had breakfast at 5 a.m. and uh, he started the fast at 5.30 and it's only, uh, it's only you know, the, it, a few hours later and he's saying Anenu. This guy who's fasting uh, the second day of uh, in a row, he can't say Anenu, even though his Inui is... Uh, presumably a lot more intense than the guy. In other words, what, what, why, why does that halacha make any sense is my question, right? The first halacha seems to be superfluous because if the ta'anit that I accepted doesn't include the nighttime, so then why should I even care that the guy ate and drank at night? And on the other side, what, why is it a problem for me to say tefillat ta'anit if I'm still fasting? Why can't I extend the fast the second day, a third day? What, what, what's wrong with that? I'm fasting. I didn't take a break in the fast and start a new one. Why can't I say a name? All right, so... The question, the question here is, if you just make the Islam Kabbalah of taking out of Ta'anit, from when does it start to when does it end? So the, the typical Kabbalah Ta'anit starts in the morning and ends at night time. Right, that's the standard. Uh, right, but, but the question isn't, isn't the assumption that the day, meaning when we count the days, it always starts at night. Right, right? but for fast, usually, except for the exceptional cases, fasts are only daytime. No, but, but I'm saying, but, so wouldn't the assumption be that, meaning, isn't that, isn't, isn't that, meaning, it sounds, sounds like not knowing anything about fasting, it sounds like fasts are, are coming out of, out of that rule. Meaning, so you would have thought, or at least I would have thought that, if you say Stam, you're gonna take on a fast for today, then why in every other scenario if I say a day, it means that's the sequence of the day, versus when you say fast, it starts from before Shahari and then no, I mean, I mean, you're right. That itself, that itself is a is a novel idea that we that when it comes to fasting, we only apply the fast during the daytime, right? But that the reason I'm bothered by what Rabbi Zehra is saying is not because of that. He's assuming that. Why do I know he's assuming that from his language? Because he doesn't say Yachid shekibel alav ta'anit mutar lechol velishtot balayla. That would be saying the halacha that you're saying. He's assuming that already. He's saying, right? Meaning, even though he's allowed to do that, that doesn't mean he, can, he can't say the tefillat ta'anid during the day. Right? But the, So I'm saying, once you already know the halacha that you're allowed to eat and drink in the nighttime, what is, what is the big chidush uh, uh, that you're allowed to say anenu during the day when you did that? I mean, that's the whole concept of you don't, you don't, the, the fast doesn't apply at night. Since the fast doesn't apply at night, so of course I'm allowed to eat and drink at night and I'm still allowed to say Anenu the next day. That's the whole concept, right? So meaning if you, your point is, is well taken, you're saying that it is a chidush of sorts that the fast only applies during the day. That generally speaking, unless it's one of the more stringent fasts, it's not a 24 hour, it's only a daytime fast. That's true. But the, the issue that uh, the issue at hand is that he's already assuming that. So he's not even getting into, well, why is that? Okay, He's getting into, 
Why is it that he, that he's getting into somehow it bothers him that even though you're eating and drinking, he's pointing out like this, that eating and drink, whether you ate or drank, doesn't really affect your tefillah ta'anit. So even though you continued fasting past the time of your ta'anit, that doesn't mean that you can uh, say aneno. And if you ate and drank on your ta'anit, you can say aneno. Right? Yeah, yeah. what are you going to say? Rabbi Levi. Sounds sound like the point you're trying to make is that it's not tied to the level of discomfort. Because if you ate and drank right the next day, you're full. Right. If you line the time at all, then you're starving. But you still don't eat. Right. Exactly. So that, that's what he seems to be that's saying. Right. That even, that even, right. I think that's, that's, that's part of what he's saying for sure. He's part of what he's saying is that even though the guy has a full belly, he's saying, Right, they say a similar thing. You know, they point out by Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, you come the night of Kol Nidre. Everyone's bloated from eating so much before the fast. You know, and yet they're saying all these prayers about the, you know, the uh, Yom Kippur and Yom Inui when their belly is full. And then on Motzei Yom Kippur, when you say Tachon uh, Antanu and you're finishing the uh, fast, you don't say anything regarding a fast because the fast is over, even though um, even though you're still really hungry. So uh, yeah, it's so it's a similar concept. I agree that that is part of what he's saying for sure, right? But then the Gemara goes on to this idea of tanit shaot. Um, he says, uh, so, yeah. Right. So, I, and I, and I think you, I think you have a point. That is part of it. He's he's saying that um, he's saying that uh, that uh, the there is no kabbalat tanit for those additional days, right? So even though the person is engaged in um, in fasting, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is uh, he's he's observing a fast. Right. Not, right. Not Right, and now there's a really important additional point that actually that on this daf the word I read the text as it's in front of us where it says afilo achal right, which implies he's doing it in the morning when he stopped eating. But if you look at what the Gilion Shaz says on the side, he says and that's true about most of the Rishonim. Most of the Rishonim hold something even more crazy than that. They hold that the night of a fast, you say anenu, even though you're not fasting yet. Meaning on Asara B'tevet, for example, the night of Asara B'tevet, you would think it's nothing. It's not a fast yet. The fast is in the morning. But actually, according to most Rishonim, you're supposed to say anenu at Arvit, even though you're not fasting at all, you're eating and drinking. And that would make Rabbi Zehra's point even stronger, that Rabbi Zehra is saying, even though you're literally eating and drinking, you're saying anenu in Arvit. 
okay, which is actually true according to almost all the Rishonim with the exception of two opinions that we will see. But that is most of the Rishonim that they hold that you say Anenu, the night of a fast, even when you're not fasting at all. So that makes the point even stronger. It's not just that your belly is full and now you started fasting five minutes ago and you're saying Anenu. It's even when you're eating, you're saying Anenu according to that, right? Because the night of the fast. So then the question becomes like, why, why would you say Anenu, the night of a fast, when you're not even fasting yet? What would the reason be? It doesn't make any sense. Now, in the Gemara goes on to talk about the issue of, of uh, Tanit Sha'ot. It says, Amar of Yosef, my What does Rabuna say? Rabuna was the person that Rabbi Zerah was quoting, right? Ein mitanin l'sha'ot, right? Or Odilma mitanin l'sha'ot, but mitanel l'sha'ot eno mitpalel tefillat tanit. Mitanel l'sha'ot means a person hypothetically could get up in the morning, say they didn't, they skipped breakfast. They're doing a intermittent fasting, which is what, which just used to be called skipping breakfast. Now it's called intermittent fasting. Sounds like something uh, very sophisticated. Now the person gets up in the morning and they don't have breakfast. They come around 12 o'clock. They're like, you know what? I already didn't eat half the day. I'm just going to fast the rest of the day and uh, reflect on my uh, sorry spiritual state and uh, work on myself. I'm going to fast the rest of the day. And so they accept upon themselves a fast for the rest of the day. It's called Tanit Shaot. Right. According to the Rambam, even if you ate and drank in the morning, you could declare the rest of your day a fast day called Tanit Sha'ot also. Most of the Rishonim say it has to be a whole day, but it doesn't matter. The point is that he's saying is the reason why Lan Betanito doesn't say the prayer of Anenu is it because En Mitanin Tanit Sha'ot. Since let's say the guy, he's not really going to go a full 24 hours. He fasted today. Tomorrow he's going to fast into the morning or he's going to fast till a certain point of the day. Maybe that's why he can't say tfilat tanit because it's not a full tanit. It's only tanit shaot. Or maybe tanit shaot is okay, but you can't say the tfilat tanit. So it says no. The problem is that we have hours here that he didn't accept from the beginning, which is what you were saying. In other words, those extra hours were not part of the Kabbalah Tanit. They weren't part of the Kabbalah Tanit. So you, you decided to continue fasting. The reason you don't say Anenu is because you never accepted that nighttime following the fast as part of your fast. If you had, you would have been able to say Anenu during the Arvit also. So the question that we have is, the question to me is this, what difference does it make if a person made a Kabbalah Tanit in advance or if they didn't make a Kabbalah Tanit in advance? Why is that even important? In other words, if I'm fasting right now because I got up in the morning and I decide, you know what? I really need to work on myself. I'm going to fast today. And I go through the entire day fasting. Why is that not significant? Why? Why do I need Kabbalah Tanit? I'm just asking a dumb question. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I just want to know why it is. What, why is it Ma'ale or Morid, the guy said a, made a Kabbalah Tanit? So I, I, and, and if we look, before you answer, look at the next page, okay? He says... I'm skipping a little bit. Um, he says over there, 
that um, that if a person does this, where is it? Um, where does he put? Ah, so if you look at the next source, on Yud Bet, Amud Aleph, where the one dot, so it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, around 17 lines from the top, I guess, something like that, where it's, there's a one dot. Amar Shmuel, kol tanit shelo kibel alav mi baod yom lav shemei tanit. This is exactly what we're talking about. If you didn't accept the tanit from beforehand, it's not a fast at all. What happens if you do that? So, so, so you fasted, right? So, um, so if you fast without making Kabbalah Tanit, what is it compared to? He says, in the, it's like Amara Babar Shena, it's like a bellows, you know, that you use for the fireplace full of air. You basically just did nothing. It's just trying to say you, you filled yourself with air for nothing. You filled yourself with, with wind instead of food for the day and you did nothing from that. Okay? I'm just bothered by the idea being a simpleton. And, I, and, and I'm just trying to say when you learn halacha, if you want to have clear ideas and the essence of learning is having the ideas clear and organized, like we said yesterday, clear and organized in your mind. You have to ask the basic questions. You can't take things for granted because if you take things for granted, you end up uh, you end up having unclarity at the root of your understanding of an area. So we have to ask every question, even the most basic, seemingly obvious questions. If a guy doesn't eat all day and another guy doesn't eat all day, and one of them accepted the fast yesterday, and one of them decided it this morning when he woke up, what difference does it make? Really, they, they, they went through the same exact experience. So why is one guy's fast not a, one guy's fast is a, is a self-destructive, meaningless, stupid action, and the other guy's action is a mitzvah, or, you know, or at least it's considered to be a fulfillment of, of an obligation of some sort. Why, why would this be uh, any different? I mean, if you're looking simply at the physical, you're looking at the surface, you're looking at exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. Just that one guy said a word yesterday, I'm going to fast tomorrow, and the other guy didn't say it. And then we have here also, before you jump in, hold on, I'm gonna, I want to just read the short part next. It says, um, so it says, when do you accept it? So Rav says it has to be around the time of Mincha, which the Rishonim take to mean any time before, basically, you know, meaning any time before the fast. According to Shmuel, it has to be betfilat Mincha. It has to be in the Tfilav Mincha. Rashi says, in your Tachanunim, meaning when you're saying, uh, uh, when you're saying at the end, um, uh, of the tefillah, etc. At the end of that, you would say, at the end of all those tachanunim, uh, you would say, "I'm accepting a fast tomorrow." Okay, that's that's the um, that's the way that Ra Rashi understands Shmuel. Some of the geonim understand it that you have to ask. You don't just say, "I'm in a fast tomorrow." You have to say in your acceptance of the fast a tefillah in your tefillat mincha saying, Hashem, please accept my fast tomorrow, okay? In other words, it's not just a statement, it's actually a request in the tefillah, that's why it has to be in the tefillah according to Shmuel. But everybody agrees 
right? Everybody's agreeing to the fact that it must be one way or another accepted in advance. Otherwise, it's not only not anything, it's bad. You, 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 you caused yourself uh, harm for no reason. Right. So that so he, the assumption is that even with the Tanit Shaot, it has to be accepted before. Meaning you got up in the morning and didn't eat, and you said, I accept the fast for the rest of the day. As opposed to the guy just doesn't eat all day and he gets to Mincha in the afternoon and he's like, look, I've been fasting all day. I'm going to say, uh, right, yeah, it was just by default. He never articulated that he was doing a fast. Well, did you notice something interesting? When did Shmuel and Rav both say you had to do Kabbalah Ta'anit? Mincha before. Why Mincha before? You're not starting the fast until the morning. What, what, so so why, why do you have to start, why do you have to make the Kabbalat Tanit the night before, the day before? It can't be the night. It has to be the day before. Why? I'm not eating until, I'm not going to stop eating until tomorrow morning anyway. I'm eating all night tonight. So why do I need to say the Kabbalat Tanit the day before? Really it should be, really it should be that it's uh, just as good to do the Kabbalat Tanit the night before. Five minutes Four before. Minutes. Why does it have to be the day before? Maybe they hold that there's more reflection and contemplation that's required. Right? Meaning? Maybe the Kabbalat Tanit the preparation before the fast is as important as the fast itself. Instead of preparation for the fast, what's such Like going to shop and like barbershop, I can't build Are you saying for a practical reason? Saying practically speaking, whatever one is, is trying to accomplish with their tani, Shmuel would say it, it, it needs to be taken in enough in advance enough, in enough preparation, with enough preparation, where it's irrelevant whether he eats that night or not. The fast the next day has to be uh has to be resting on, on something. Mm. Which is, uh, Again, this idea of, of knowing what he's fasting for. So I'm not, I'm not explaining it. Well. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. But uh, so I, I, 
Oh, yes. We don't see value in afflicting ourselves per se. The, the value is in the commitment we're making to grow or to uh, make ourselves uncomfortable to get to a certain realization. In fact, that's where our, our value is. That's all this like accepting the the, the tiny beforehand is saying, don't don't view the tiny as the, the mean. Don't 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 view the not even food as the mean and the end goal here. That's not the end goal. That's just a that's just a byproduct of getting you to your end goal is whatever commitment you're going to make. That's why Kabbalah is necessary. It seems like without the Kabbalah, see this, this subject was this subject was so good that we started learning Kabbalah. <laughs> see that it was it was I lured you into it. See, but it it's a. Uh, I think you guys are all on the right track in my mind, but there's just a very basic idea that I would introduce to maybe clarify it a little bit, which is that there's a difference between the biological act of uh, abstention from food. Like you said, it's not a thing in its own right. I think you're definitely making an X. That's definitely one of the points here, but to put it in a more, in a framework that fits in a larger context is the goal. What is the nature of a ta'anit? Is the nature of a ta'anit a behavior of an individual? Um, you have such a thing as a ta'anit yachid, which is an abstention of, from food and drink of an individual. You have such a thing as a ta'anit sibur, which is a, an abstention of food and drink uh, by the community. But it's not really a gastronomical phenomenon. It's really something which is a yom ta'anit. In other words, the yom ta'anit is the essential concept. The, the behavior on the ta'anit is a fulfillment of the mandate of the Yom Ta'anit. The Yom Ta'anit has a goal. Why are you koveya or mekabel a Yom Ta'anit is for a particular reason. It could be because of a crisis that demands uh, introspection. It could be because of a, uh, uh, you, you want, you recognize in yourself a need to do certain introspection and not necessarily precipitated by a crisis. I'm not sure it could be done for many reasons, but the idea is, that you're establishing a day which is, so to speak, consecrated to this objective of introspection. The non-eating and drinking is an instrumental to the fulfillment of and the achievement of the goal of the Yom Ta'anit. The same way that on any Chag, let's say, the mitzvot of the Chag or the oneg in the kavod of the Shabbat or whatever it is in a particular day, Yom Kadosh, are means to the end of realizing whatever that day is consecrated for. It's not an action isolated from its purpose. It's an action embedded in a context of purpose. So, and that's the main thing to understand. So a yom ta'anit is really what you're, what you're dealing with. And once you have the concept that there's a yom ta'anit, and actually the, the rabbis uh, really mention it a little bit further on in the Gemara, this concept of, uh, they quote a pasuk a little bit further on when they talk about the isur melacha and certain communal ta'aniyot. I'll just, it's on yud bet amud bet at the bottom, but I'll read it to you when they talk about melacha. He says, he quotes a pasuk, how could melacha be forbidden on certain uh, taniyot? Because it says, sanctify a fast, 
call an assembly, right? So the idea is that right? This is a pasuk in Yoel. This pasuk is describing a fast as a day that is consecrated for the gathering of the people for a purpose of za'aka, crying out to God. That is the goal of the Yom Ta'anit, is to recognize a distance between the person and God. It's just a means that we use is the fasting. So in the, and what do they say from that? Just like atzeret, meaning a holiday, meaning Shavuot actually, is asur basiat melacha, aftanit asur basiat melacha. Now most taniot are not asur basiat melacha, but I just wanted to bring that as a concept that you see that they have the idea that you're designating a Yom Kadosh of a certain type. And where does the Rambam put the Halachot of Tanit? In Sefer Zmanim, actually, which is weird if you think about it, because 99% of Taniot are not tied to a particular time. They're precipitated by a crisis that occurs that could happen really hypothetically at any time. There are certain fasts that are at particular times. But most taniyot that are discussed in halakha happen as a result of crises that could happen possibly at any time. So why is it in Sefer Zmanim? I would suggest not because, not because it necessarily happens on a seasonal basis, although some of them do, but because it's the any Yom Kadosh, any Zman Kadosh, a time that is consecrated to a certain objective that is higher than personal interest. That's what a Yom Kadosh is. Any day of that nature uh, is going to be in Sefer Zmanim because Zman is the unit that's being utilized to achieve the objective. Um, and, and Zman, meaning consecrating a time for a certain purpose, is one of the ways that human beings accomplish uh, you know, growth. And that's what we're doing right now. We're consecrating time. You have a lot of examples of that. But anytime you take, anytime a day is designated for a certain purpose of Kiddushah, it takes on, you know, it fits into Sefer Zmanim. So once you understand that idea, okay? In other words, once you understand that, what do we just do, basically? What we just did was we just showed that when you look at fasting on the surface, what you basically see at first is not eating and not drinking. And really, it would seem that that's inseparable from what a fast is. Inseparable from what a tzom is, is not eating and not drinking. So when it's the nighttime of the fast, you're not really fasting on a sabbat at nighttime. You're not, right? What about a person who can't manage to fast? We're going to get that to a second, to that in a second. But it, the day of a Yom Ta'anit can be a tw- is a 24-hour day, even though the actual abstention from eating and drinking is only during the daytime. That's the Chidush. Because since it's a Yom Ta'anit, a Yom Ta'anit means a day in its totality, a 24-hour day. It so happens that most Ta'aniyot, we're lenient, and we only abstain from the eating and drinking during the day. But if a person, let me ask you, if a person falls asleep at night on Asarab Tevet at nine o'clock at night, they fell asleep and they wake up at 12 midnight, are they allowed to eat? I'm talking about a person who didn't make any conditions, right? They fell asleep on the night before the fast. 
The fast is in the morning, right? They went to sleep. They went to sleep at nine o'clock. They wake up at one in the morning. They want to eat. Can they? No, right? We know you have to make a condition if you want to eat in the morning, right? Even that is debatable. That's only from the Yerushalmi. The Bavli doesn't say that. A lot of pure Rambamists don't allow it. Okay? The Shulchan Aruch took it from the Yerushalmi. What, but the point is, what? Once you, once you introduce the idea of a Yom see, if you don't have the idea of a Yom Tanit, it makes no sense. Because why should I have the rule of not eating and drinking starting the night before? The night is not part of the fast. The fast is during the day, correct? So why would it be that if I fell asleep at 9 p.m., I woke up at 1 a.m., I can't eat? Why? The fa- it says on the Luach, the fast starts at 5.15. Why, why should I have to abstain from eating and drinking the night before? But the answer is that really the whole Yom is a Yom Tanit. I was allowed to eat at night as a leniency. But as soon as I'm done for the night and I go to bed, the Yom Tanit is in full force. The leniency of eating at night is over. I, I, I finished with the leniency of eating at night. So now the rest of the Yom Tanit is a Yom Tanit 100%. And I can't eat and drink unless I made that condition. Debatable condition, okay? Now... Well, there is, because if, if you go to bed in the nighttime and you don't make a condition that you, you're not allowed to eat in the morning when you wake up, meaning if you wanted to get up extra early. Then why don't we like, uh, why don't we commemorate the, the day of the fast at the nighttime? Okay, so that, that, that's a good question. So uh, other than Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, we really don't do that, except this is an interesting thing. According to most Rishonim, according to Rashi, according to Rambam, according to Ramban, according to uh, the Rif, according to most Rishonim, you're supposed to say Anenu at night, at Arvit of the fast day, before the fast. What, now, you would say, that makes no sense. Why are you saying uh, Anenu at night? But it says, what does it say in Anenu? Anenu biyom tzom hatanitazeh. Because it's a Yom Tzom. It's the Yom Tzom. It is the day of the Tzom. The fact that I only have to observe the abstention from eating and drinking during the daytime is just a detail of a, one of the dinim of the Tzom. But the whole, that's why one of the things, it was a big machloket actually. The nighttime of a fast, are you allowed to have a wedding? The night of Asar the night of Shiva Asar Big machloket actually. Really, According to the, to the way you understand this, it shouldn't be allowed. Because really from the nighttime, it's already its own. It's just that you're allowed to eat. Because it was, they didn't make it so machmir uh, that you can't eat. But really it's a yom tzom. You shouldn't be having a wedding on that night or party on that night. Okay? So, in, so once you understand that it's really the reflection of the yom tzom as a day of za'aka, a day of crying out to God, begins from the night before, just that the technical requirement of abstention from food and drink only comes into play during the daytime, that changes the whole way you relate to a fast day. A fast day is essentially a yom of za'aka. It's essentially a yom of crying out to God that you, and therefore what? Therefore, it has to be established in advance. Because if fasting was just a biological action or, or abstention, so then you could just jump into it in the daytime, stop eating or wake up in the morning and decide to skip breakfast and lunch and make a fast out of it. 
But since it has to be a Yom Tzom, now you understand why Rav and Shmuel both agree it has to be during the daytime of the previous day, not during the nighttime, the daytime of the previous day, because you can't be in the day already and establish it as a Yom Tzom. You had, it had to be the day before. You said tomorrow, the third of Adar, I'm just using your example again and again, tomorrow the third of Adar is going to be a Yom Tzom. Once you say that, right, according to Rav, you can just say it. According to Shmuel, it has to be in tefillah because you're at, because the, the, the Tanit is a ritzui. It's a, the Tanit is a type of an offering. It's a type of avodah that you're asking Hashem to answer you in the Tzom. Right, the way that the Geonim say that you're actually in the acceptance of the Tanit, you're supposed to be requesting God to accept your fast, right? Because it's sort of an offering to God, it's an avodah to God. So that, but the creation of the Yom Tzom has to be done in advance. It can't be done accidentally because you just stopped eating on a particular day. That that would do violence to the whole concept. Now you can see also. Rebbe Zeraz Halacha. The night of the fast, even though you're eating and drinking, you can say Anenu. After the fast is over, even though you didn't eat yet, and even if you decide to do a marathon to the next morning, you can't say Anenu. Why not? Because it's not the Yom Tzom. You're just not eating. Just not eating is not a Tzom. Because a Ta'anit is a Yom Zaka. It's not essentially a day that you don't eat and drink. It's essentially a day of zakah where part of the way that we put ourselves in the mindset of zakah is we fast, we abstain from eating and drinking. What, by the way, I, I gave a shiur before Yom Kippur on the nature of inui. I don't know if any of you guys got a chance to listen to it. It was, a, I think, important point. What is inui really? The classic case of inui, of course, is paro. Uh, being me'aneh, the Jewish people, the inui of Mitzrayim, uh, you know, uh, that the the Egyptians caused us affliction. But what is affliction really? Affliction is not mainly about depriving somebody of pleasure. That's what I was explaining in the shiur. Inui is done by a master to subordinate, to subjugate the slave, to put the slave in his place. In other words, a withholding of enjoyment, which is designed to enforce a sense of subordination and inferiority in the subject. It's not just a a deprivation of pleasure per se. So like a guy that will uh, deny their servant or their employee something just to show them who's the boss type of thing, right? Sometimes they do it just to show you who's in charge. I'm not going to let you do this. That type of an attitude, that type of an action is called inui, right? When you're depriving somebody of something to show them that you are in a superior position. So what is inui? What is le'anotet nafshotechem in Yom Kippur? This is what I was explaining in the shiur. So what is le'anotet nafshotechem in Yom Kippur? It means to show your body that your mind is the boss. By saying, I can control, I'm going to deny my body access to gratification in order to impress upon my psyche the idea that the mind is the master and the body is subordinate to the mind. And therefore the mind has the ability in its service of Hashem to deny the body gratification 
And that's a lesson about the true nature of who I am. That's why it's a, that's why it's a mechaper. Also, I don't want to go too far into Yom Kippur, but that's the, uh, that's the idea of Inui. Inui is to deny pleasure for the purpose of putting something in its place, for the purpose of subordinating something. And that's what you're doing in Inui. You're saying my body is subordinate to the soul. My body, if it's allowed to, to be an independent force influencing me, that's when I get problems. When my emotions or my instincts drive my life, that's when I have problems. So I need to sometimes remind myself, who is the real boss? The real boss is the mind. The real boss is the soul. The real boss is not the instincts and the body. That's what Inui is about. That's part of the exercise of Teshuvah withdrawing from pleasure, denying ourselves pleasure and gratification so that the mind is fully in charge and is able to reflect on and reorder the inner life of the individual. Because when we're in the throes of pleasure and enjoyment and instinctual gratification, we can't reflect on that gratification. You can't reflect on some on an, an experience of emotion that's why anger, for instance, is such a dangerous emotion because you completely lose the ability to reflect. But um, in all states of um, in all states of uh, of pleasure or emotional intensity, it's very difficult to be in a reflective stance. What the Tani does is by subordinating the body to the mind, it allows us to look at our to introspect more effectively. Right? to bring things into line, into balance with our principles. That's the idea of it. So if that's why it's not the tzom. The fasting is not the tzom. The yom tzom is a yom mikudash for a certain type of avodat Hashem, which is the avodah of za'aka, the avodah of recognizing a distance between us and God that has resulted in certain negative outcomes that are affecting us. Um, that's the that's the goal of the uh, of the tzom. The the abstention from food and drink is a tool towards the achievement of that goal. But it's not the only tool because if you look at this, there's a seder ayom of taniot. The Rambam lays out what the seder ayom of taniot tzibur was. They had in the morning tefillah, kriyata Torah and haftarah. They would have a gathering of all of the people to discuss anything that could be fixed or improved in the community. Then they would have tefillah, haftarah, Torah, etc. And then they would pray until the end of the day. There was a seder hayom of the yom ta'anit. And guess what? None of it mentions fasting. Meaning there's an, there is a spiritual activity, if you will, that's supposed to go on on the fast day, that the fasting itself is just in the background. It's just what enables us to have the focus away from our own gratification and be in the mindset to engage in those developmental activities. That's on the that's on the tefillah, that's in the Tanit Sibur that the Rambam mentions the Seder Taniot. But the Rambam Seder Taniot is straight out of the Mishnah and Gemara. It's just easier to read the Rambam because the Gemara will keep asking questions. Well, what why do you do this and what about this? And and it gets distracting. When you read the Rambam, he already has it all laid out for you very simply. So he tells you what the Seder Taniot is. He says um, that. Uh, he talks about what they do, how they have a drashav, the chacham, a special tefillah. They bring the Torah out to the streets. They put the Sefer Torah with, uh, they put uh, ashes there. And they, there's all Seder Taniot in Perak of, um, of, uh, of Hilchot Taniot. And then he says, 
Um, and he talks about how they would have a zaken who would come and, uh, and, uh, and give them a drashot of Musar and so on. So there was a whole order to how they conducted themselves on the Yom Ta'anit. It wasn't just a, it wasn't mainly about the abstention from food and drink. It was mainly about the, uh, uh, the development that emerged from it. And if you look at the Rambam in the beginning of Hilchot which I had on your uh, list of things to look at, you'll see. He says, what's the main mitzvah of Taniyot? In the beginning of Hilchot Tanit, nothing to do with fasting. Right? What is the main mitzvah of Taniyot? Nothing that has to do with the Tanit. It's actually blowing the trumpets when there's a crisis. That's the main mitzvah of the Tanit. So why you call it Hilchot Taniyot? Call it Hilchot Chatzotzot or something. What does that have to do with the Tanit? The Tanit is not the main thing. Right? And he says, what's the reason? What's the reason? When we cry out about a crisis, they realize that it's because of their bad deeds that this happened. Right? On the other hand, and this will cause them to do teshuvah. But if they don't cry out, then they, and they say it's just an accident that this happened, that's derech achzariyut. It's indifference. Right? I'm just jumping around a little bit. But basically what the Rambam is saying is that the main thing to do in a crisis is to blow the, sh- the, the chatzotrot. What do the chatzotrot represent? That we recognize that whatever crisis is befalling us is because of a, a problem, a lack in our relationship with God. And when you think about, don't think about our relationship with God the wrong way. Meaning, it doesn't mean that because you did an Avera, Hashem is zapping you with a crisis. That's not all that it means. It means that when the Jewish people don't act according to the derech ha-chokhmah, they come into a situation of crisis. It's not just individual mitzvot. It's the derech ha-chayim of Am Yisrael being a derech chokhmah. When it's the derech of Chochmat Hashem, it's governing the Jewish people, then they're always successful. And when it's something other than that, then it leads them into crisis. And so when they cry out and they take responsibility for whatever is afflict, whatever is happening to them, they can correct it. See how he said what he just did there? The Rambam is a genius of organization and principles, okay? He showed you what the real goal is. The real goal is the crying out, which is an acknowledgement. Why do we say, Anna Hashem Chatati? What, what does it mean, please, Anna Hashem, please Hashem, I sinned? What, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Anna Hashem means there's a distance between me and Hashem. And I recognize it, and it's caused by my chataim. That's the crying out to God. That's the essence. What did the rabbis do? They said, this crying out should occur on a ta'anit. And on the yimei ta'anit, we cry out in the tefillah, and we, we do tachanunim, and we blow the chatzotrot. In other words, all, what the fast does is it creates a condition where the people, it creates a yom ta'anit, where the people are receptive to the tefillot and engaged with the tefillot to a higher level and the tachanunim to a higher level. That's the purpose of it. It's to create a framework really for the tefillah. 
And you see it even in Anenu. Anenu Avinu Anenu etc. Right? And then it says, Terem Lecha Ta'ane. Even before we cry out to you, you answer. That's what it says in the Tefillah. Why does it say that? Meaning it's not about the words. It's about the inner transformation really that occurs that changes the fate of the Jewish people and changes the response of the Ashkachah. But the Yom Ta'anit is not even just, he didn't, he says, There's an idea of a Yom Ta'anit. The Yom Ta'anit, we are supposed to fast on it. Right? So, uh, but that isn't the totality of the meaning of it. That that is just a an aspect of the experience of za'aka. And so once you have that idea, you can understand why it makes sense to say anenu, even at arvit of the tanya, which by the way, I personally do, even though I never would tell you to do it because it's not, it's not what the Shulchan Aruch says, but I always follow the Rambam and I said anenu and arvit also, and in shachrit also. But the Shulchan Aruch says only in shachrit. But we'll get to that in a second. But the idea is the Yom Tanit is 24 hours, no matter what. So the Kabbalah Tanit has to be, what is the Chidush of Tanit Sha'ot, by the way? The, the Chidush of Tanit Sha'ot is that you can have a mini Zman Tanit without a Yom Tanit. That's the Chidush, that you could have a Zman Tanit, but it also has to be a time that is Mikudash. You decided before that now the rest of the day is going to be azman ta'anit. It's ta'anit sha'ot. It's not a total day of ta'anit. So yeah, you can do that. But whenever you have a regular ta'anit, it's a yom ta'anit. And it begins the night before, even though the isurei achila and isur, you know, to eat and drink is only going to start during the day. The whole day is a vehicle of the za'aka, the recognition of Hashem and the process of tshuva. Yes. What's the rule of Kabbalah for a uh, Tani Tani Yeah. So it has to be before the time. So let's say you wake up in the morning and you decide, you know, I already skipped breakfast. I'll make the rest of the day as uh, Tanit. So because you said that prior to the rest of the day, the rest of the day counts as a Tanit. Yeah, the Rambam says that you could even do it if you ate in the morning, but everybody argues with him and says, no, no, you can't do that. You have to, it has to be at least that the whole day went without any eating and drinking. The Rambam holds that you can actually make just half the day as uh, mantanit. According to the other Rishonim, the day has to be without any eating and drinking, even though you only established it as a yom tanit in the midway, you know? But either way, the concept that yom tanit ex- exists independently of fasting. Because it's a day mikudash for a certain purpose. And once you have that idea, so then you come up against the following question. What happens, and here's a classic question. What about a person who isn't fasting? Can they get an aliyah on the Yom Ta'anit? Can they, uh, forget about individual fast. Obviously, if they're not fasting, then they're not doing an individual fast. But w- what happens if on, on Shivasar B'Tamuz, a guy wants to get an aliyah and he's not fasting? What if he wants to say Anenu and his tefillah is not fast? So this is going to depend upon how you understand the, uh, and this was a machloket achronim actually, the Khatam Sofer versus the, uh, versus um, uh, one of the Sephardic achronim. Um, I forget his name, but uh, it's a machloket, but the Maharik originally talked about it with Tanit Yachid. 
And then there was, uh, and then there was a machloket. I only remember the Khatam Sofer because I liked his conclusion better. So I was, you know, but there's another Akron that argued with him. Uh, one of the Maharams or uh, 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 one of the Sephardic Maharams. I can't remember which one. And he's, he wanted to say that no. And, and most of the time the Minhagen is they say no. But the, um, but logically speaking, let's say on Shivasar Betamuz, once you understand this concept, right? That there's such a thing as a Yom Ta'anit. So that means that if, the, if we are Gozer Ta'anit on the whole Tzibur, the Tanit is not the sum total of the individuals observing the fasting. The Tanit is a Yom Tanit that exists independently of whether I'm fasting or not. My fasting is my own personal observance whether I can fast or not. But the Yom Tanit exists independently of whether I'm fasting. So therefore, it would seem logical. And again, I'm not making any Piskei Halacha I'm saying what seems right to me is that like a lot of times I'll say, oh, if there aren't seven people fasting, we can't take out the Sefer Torah in the afternoon of the Ta'anit or in the morning because there's not a minyan of fasters or there's not six or seven people fasting. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me because as far as I'm concerned, once there's a yom, that's a yom Ta'anit, that means that the Chachamim legislated a Kriyat Torah for that day. What difference does it make if the people who came to the minyan are fasting or not? The Chachamim said there's a Kriyat Torah of that day, so that's what you do. It's still a Yom Teshuvah of the people. Who cares that these individuals aren't fasting? Maybe they all have an excuse they can't fast. But it's still a Yom Ta'anit. It's still a day of Zaka. So they should still read the Torah. And I would say the same thing about Anenu. Um, this was a, but um, the Chatam Sofer was the one who said this. Uh, and he's very from, so I felt very comfortable saying it too, even though it's not usually the halacha that's practiced today, which is that uh, that you should be able to read the Torah and you should be able to get an aliyah too, because it has absolutely nothing to do with the observance of the fast. It has to do with the fact that it's a yom ta'anit. And the yom ta'anit is an institution that the Chachamim created. A public yom ta'anit is created by the Chachamim for the Yom. doesn't matter whether I'm personally fasting or not. That's irrelevant to the yom ta'anit. When it comes to you know, when it comes to a personal fast, that's a different story. That's why the Marik actually in his chuba that everyone quotes, the Marik is talking about a group of people doing the Tanit Bahab, where it's an individual. You know what the Tanit Bahab is, where people do the Monday, Thursday, Monday after the Chag, right? That's an individual fast. So you can't justify taking out the Torah unless you have a minyan of fasters, because there's no Yom Tanit of the Tzibur on that day. It's only individual fasts. So if you have 10 people doing an individual fast, then it makes sense to take out the Torah. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to take out the Torah. But if you're, but on a Yom Tanit that was nigzal from the Chachamim for the entire Tzibur, why does it matter whether individuals in my minyan are fasting? Am I going to say if not enough people are Shomer Shabbat in my minyan, I won't take out the Sefer Torah because it's not Shabbat? You know, once you look at it that the Yom is an institution in its own right, it becomes less important whether the uh, people are individually observing the fast. And, um, and the same with Anenu. Anenu, and uh, a lot of times you'll hear people, I'll, you might have noticed, I, I'm always very su subversive in everything that I do. Um, so I was always very cagey and I never said it straight out, but I never announced on any fast, oh, say Anenu if you're fasting. Because I didn't believe in that and I wouldn't say something I don't believe in. As far as I'm concerned, 
um, when you say uh, when it's uh, whether you're saying um, that for Tisha B'Av the uh, the addition for Tisha B'Av or whether you're saying Anenu for the fast it has nothing to do with whether you're fasting or not it's a Yom Tzom what difference does it make whether I'm fasting or not do I you know so it's a uh, so it, it, it my view from based on this understanding is that once it's a Yom Zaka of the community, Anenu is part of the tefillah. It has nothing to do with your personal decision or your situation that you couldn't fast or you chose not to fast. It's just like Rosh Chodesh, we say Ya'alev Yavol. And uh, because it's a day of, uh, of increased Avodat Hashem, and you say on Purim and Chanukah Alanisim, you say on a fast day, Anenu. It's part of the, it's the, it's the halacha of the day. It has nothing to, it's called me'ena me'orah is what the Gemara calls it. Me'ena me'orah means you always put in the tefillah what reflects the happening of what's going on. Me'ena me'orah. So me'ena me'orah, it says you should, and, and this is the riff that I sent you guys to look in the, in the sources that I wrote down. He says, he quotes from the Yerushalmi, me'ena me'orah, just like Shabbat. Just like on Shabbat, you say, Evening, morning, and afternoon, you mentioned Shabbat and the tefillah. So too with Anenu, evening, morning, and afternoon, even if it's only a daytime fast. Because the idea is that the yom is what is the cause, not the individual's participation in the abstention from food and drink uh, of the fast. So that being the case, um, so it leads to some interesting halachic conclusions. But there's also an interesting machloket between the tour brings between Rav Natan and himself. He's, whether the chazan, could you be a chazan? Listen to this. You would never imagine this ever happening today. The tour brings it straight out. Can you be the chazan if you're not fasting on a fast day? And he, and the, and he brings Rav Natan, who was another Rishon, earlier Rishon than him, who said, no, you can't. And then he says, but I personally think, what difference does it make? The, the tour actually says a chazan could go up, even though he just had lunch, you know? They, uh, they used to make a joke. There used to be these two um, Ashkenazi chazanim in Brooklyn who were also uh, opera singers. Uh, one thing was Jan Pierce and, um, and the other one was, uh, what's his name? Um, it'll come back to me. Uh, oh, shoot. Richard Tucker, right. So, they, so, so Jan Pierce was like from, who's modern Orthodox? And Richard Tucker was not. And so they used to say, why is it that Jan Pierce did a better Kol Nidre and Richard Tucker did a better Ne'ilah? Because Jan Pierce ate right before Kol Nidre and, Jan, and Richard Tucker ate right before Ne'ilah, you know? I, I doubt that's I doubt he ate on Yom Kippur, but it was a funny joke anyway. The, the point of the joke was that, you know, he wasn't so religious. But um, I doubt that he ate on Yom Kippur. Um, the, but the, the point is that you could, you could not eat, um, you, you could eat or not eat, and it could still be a Yom Tzom that you're participating in in every other way. And that's the idea of once you have this concept, you can appreciate the complexity of, uh, you know, the nuance in that. Now you do have, and I, uh, this machloket between the, there's a machloket about when should you say anenu? There's actually a three, three way machloket about it. What some say, like I mentioned, which is the majority of the Rishonim, Arvit, Shachrit, 
Mincha, you should say Anenu at all of them. Everybody says that all Svaradim do that on Tisha B'Av, I think. But that's the that's opinion number one. I put that as opinion number one because it's the majority of the Rishoni. Then you have the the Bala Lachot Gedolot, the nemesis of the Rambam. You know, if you're a Rambam person, when you hear Bala Lachot Gedolot, you have to shudder because you think of how he tears them apart in the in the beginning of the Sefer Mitzvot. But um, but he, he but he was a very influential person in many halachot that uh, you know many the development of halacha and the Tosfot and Yud Aleph Amud Bet mentions this bal halachot gedolot that you should only really say anenu at mincha. And what was the reason why he says that? Because maybe nimtza shakran betfilato. Maybe the guy is going to end up breaking the fast in the early afternoon because he can't make it through. And then in the morning he said, Anenu, and uh, he was lying because he didn't really finish the fast. So therefore the Ashkenazim today, for sure, their minhag is they only say Anenu at Mincha on fast days. Then you have the middle position, which is the Bala Maor's position, which I always thought was remarkable that the Shulchan Aruch ended up going that way which is now basically the standard Sephardic way that you say anenu in shacharit and mincha, but not in the arvit before. Now that one we can understand because that's basically saying what? What's the logic behind that position? I could see the logic behind it. Right, whenever you're actually fasting, right? In other words, the people... Huh? The time that, that people are fasting, not necessarily you individually. Like well, no, because they're saying only if you are actually fasting. No. Right. So they're saying that you should fa- you should say anenu only when you're actually fasting, shacharit and mincha. Right? You that's when you should say. The Bahag says, the Bala says only in mincha, because maybe you're not going to make it through the fast, and then you said it in shacharit and you're lying. So they're obviously maintaining that saying anenu is a part of the fast, meaning it's not part of the yom tzom, it's part of the of your personal fast. So since your personal observance of the fast is shacharit and mincha only, therefore you only say anenu at shacharit and mincha, right? But according to, if you say that anenu is me'ena me'ora, it's just a reflection of the Kiddushata Yom, so to speak, of the specialness of the Yom Tzom. So then you're going to say Anenu at all three tefillot. The Bahag is the one that has the weirdest idea because he's worried that maybe you're going to end up eating in the afternoon and retroactively your uh, Shacharit Tefillah is going to end up have been a lie because you said you were fasting and you didn't. And of course, all the Rishonim ask, like, what kind of a logic is that? Do you not count the Omer? Uh, you know, because maybe somewhere along the way you're going to miss a night and then everything that you did up till now, you said, you know, nobody says that. So why would you not, why would you not say anenu until mincha? What kind of logic is it not to say anenu until mincha? Because maybe you're going to end up that you didn't really finish the fast. It's a strange, it's a strange logic, right? We can understand saying it's yom tzom and old tefillot. And then it wouldn't matter whether even fasting or not. And then you could understand that it has to do with the fast, that it's part of your experience of the fast, that your time, that filavanenu is relating your observance of the abstention from food and drink to the experience of the fast. And therefore you only say it when you're actually fasting. 
but waiting until the end of the day is the most unusual, right? Because it doesn't seem to have anything. What, what, what difference does it make? How could you say that I'm lying? When I, when I was in the morning fasting, I, I really was fasting when I said aneno. Now you're going to say that retroactively I wasn't telling the truth because, uh, because I, I said aneno too early. I mean, and now I, and now I broke the fast. So really my aneno of the morning was nothing. So he's, so what's the logic behind that? Is there any logic that we can find for that, uh, for that, that position? Do you see any uh, reasoning behind that? What? Yeah, because we can understand the other opinions, I think. They, they, they have a logic to them, you know? Saying that it has to do with the observance of the fast, okay. Saying it has to do with the yom, so uh, that's I, that makes sense. But saying that it has to do, uh, with, you know, that you have to be worried that maybe you, uh, you know, only should say it at the last minute. Why should you only say it at the last minute? Yeah, even if it was about that doesn't make sense because you can pay the time at 1230 or 1 o'clock or whatever. Right. In this case, you, still, you still don't know if you're going to pass the opening. You still might be a shock class because you might eat after that. Right. Yeah, so, what, so, so any, any logic in that? That he thinks that anenu is related to the kabbalatatanit of Hashem being mekabeltanit. In other words, that you fulfilled the tanit, and that you're asking for the acceptance of your uh, of your tanit, and therefore you said in the morning that you were presenting a tanit and you didn't fulfill, you didn't follow through. So it's like you made a promise that you didn't fulfill. So when you so when you're at the end at the last filah of the day, so you can say to God, accept my tanit that I completed, basically, that I you know that I that I completed this tanit, and you're asking for Hashem to accept it as uh as, you know and and be merachem on you for whatever uh, whatever tshuva was necessary, whatever crisis was was going on. So it's more related to the kiyuma tanit that you fulfilled it than to the observance of the tanit itself. Maybe something like that. So yeah, so you'll ask, yeah, but what about even if mincha? You could pray mincha early, and then uh, and then um, uh, you retroactively also break the fast. That's true, but it's too late. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, okay, now there's nothing you can do. Meaning, leaving it to the last possible time is the best you can do to show that you don't want to pre uh, prematurely claim victory that you uh, completed a tanit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that you're going to make it through either, right? It's just that you you waited to the last possible moment to uh, so that you're not prematurely declaring that you completed a and fulfilled the tanit, you know. 
That's that would seem to be the uh, the point. Um, but but in so far as this this basic idea, um, the reason why I wanted to use this as another example is because I felt that it's another case where really you can see um, you can see the concept that you can have a halacha or a detail of halacha, whether it's the halacha of not eating and drinking on a fast or the detail that you require kabbalat ta'anit, and you see that that's not just an arbitrary piece of information, okay? It's not just an arbitrary piece of information because when you, and I purposely, and this is sometimes good for your own thinking, I think, exaggerate the case of, of the, uh, you know, uh, of the, try to strengthen your questions as much as possible, because a lot of times that's the breaking point. In other words, when you try to examine fasting and you, if you walk, walk in with the assumption that it's mainly about abstention from food and drink, you're going to paint yourself into a corner really fast with a lot of these halachot that don't fit with that idea at all. Because you're not going to be able to explain Kabbalat Tanit. You're not going to be able to explain the night of the Tanit having significance. You're not going to be able to explain the timing of the, you're not going to be able to explain how some, how you could say Anenu at night, according to most Rishonim. You're not going to be able to explain how um, many hold that you can have a Torah reading and say Anenu even though you're not fasting. None of that's going to make any sense if you're looking at fasting on the physical level. So the more you realize that that paints you into an uh, ideational uh, corner, the more you're able then to see that there must be a broader framework that I'm missing that is uh, that puts this into context. Not to diminish the importance of the actual fasting in the experience of the Yom Ta'anit, but if there's just an abstention from food and drink without an... See, once you understand, this is the thing that I think is the most important. Once you understand, you could see why it says Shat Talmud Right? The Gemara says, what's greater? Uh, you know, learning or or maaseh. And it says, oh, talmud, because a talmud because learning brings you to doing. says not doesn't bring you to learning. Once you understand what a yom ta'anit is, next time a yom ta'anit comes, you relate to it totally differently than the way you related to it before, which was mainly about preparing for and enduring a period of time that you couldn't eat or drink. You now understand that it's mainly, not that you didn't understand this before, but you now see that the halacha is presented in a way to teach you that a tanit is mainly a day consecrated to a certain objective and that the not eating and drinking is just a tool that the halakha uses to put you in the mindset to be able to achieve it. So now when you go into a fast, you think of it totally differently than you would if you just read the halakhot on the surface and processed it as a day of not eating and drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Mental decision to deprive my body of food. 
I'm thinking about a lot more than I do on a regular basis. <laughs> I feel, in a way, backward a little bit. Where exactly, where are you trying to leave your body on that day? When you, in terms of your relationship with food. Right. It's kind of as far from consumed by diet or food when we're not eating that Right. So what are you trying to well, fast days are difficult, more difficult for us a lot of times because we don't have, well, first of all, because some we're more sensitive. I think we have more plentiful food than uh, maybe generations past. So we, we're more used to, you know, eating on demand all the time and having full, lots of food. And, and, and so it's even harder for us. Our habits are so food centered. Um, that, that's, that's, a you know, a cholia nefesh of the generation, or something like that. But in in terms of the uh, in terms of the focus of the fast, because we don't, because most people don't relate to the fast as a day with a particular objective and an avodah to engage in, so they're they're focused instead on what they don't have on that day, which is the food. When you're preoccupied with a uh, with a goal and an objective, sometimes you can forget about, uh, or at least think less about the absence of food. But because we don't have a structure through which to uh, gain from the yom, to relate to the yom tzom as something more than what we don't have, so it's harder to uh, it's harder to um, uh, you know to get away from focusing on what's missing. Although I think that it's a great opportunity to reflect upon our relationship with food. In other words, if you really feel overwhelmed by the, the beckoning of the food, so that's an opportunity to really reflect on our relationship with food and uh, whether it's a healthy relationship or not. Um, and uh, to try to recalibrate the relationship with food. Sometimes that might be necessary. I think a lot of times the problem is just that we don't have a structure for um, utilizing a yom tzom in a meaningful way. Uh, and, and because I find, at least, and this is my personal experience, that Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av are sometimes easier, even though they're much longer than the other, than she, uh, to me, the hardest fast is Shivasar B'Tamuz, actually. And the reason is because Shivasar B'Tamuz, there's no, it's very long, it's almost as long as Tisha B'Av, but it's, uh, there's very little structure of anything to do. So you're just sort of like, waiting to get through the tzom and uh, get to the end. There doesn't seem to be much support for uh, what is this fast about? Whereas on Yom Kippur, hypothetically, you could be preoccupied the entire day with the tefillah. And not that you don't feel hungry at certain points, but you might have too much else to think about that doesn't make doesn't allow you to dwell as much on the uh, on the uh, belly, uh, you know, the empty belt. Um, it's a... Uh, also, also relatability. Yeah. Or it's very relatable. You can say that. But like some Gedalia, for example, I think it's hard for us to relate to it. It's hard for us to find meaning. Uh, right. That's meaningful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right that we... We don't relate to the uh, to the tragedy that it's commemorating that much. We don't really know. We don't have. There are slichot that the rabbis wrote that are supposed to uh, help you to appreciate what you're supposed to be reflecting on on these tzomot. The problem is that most people read them at light speed just to get through. 
they don't really take time to learn and understand the slichot, and therefore they don't really have a framework to uh, connect to the meaning of these uh, these days in a, in a constructive way. The way that like Tisha B'Av, there's so much programming on Tisha B'Av to help you to connect with the day. Uh, Yom Kippur, obviously the whole day is tefillah and, and, and the whole day is busy with, uh, with various um, uh, mitzvot that keep you occupied for the, uh, for the entire time. So it's a totally different ballgame. But, um, but uh, uh, on, uh, on, on these other fasts, there's much, much less, if any, structure for trying to, to really connect to the theme of the day. And you're right about that. And I think that's one of the problems that we have with relating to it as a Yom Tzom, that we mainly relate to the absence of food and drink and prepare for that. We don't really say, Tzom Gedalia is coming up. What should I focus on uh, in, in, to make this Yom Tzom a meaningful day of coming close, of recognizing areas in which I have distance from God or I as a Jewish, as a member of the Klal or I as an individual? And uh, working on that, what am I going to work on on this uh, on this Yom Tzom? Then I'm going to use my uh, disconnect from food and drink as an opportunity to invest my energy in this other thing. We we don't really approach the fast like that, and that that's part of the problem. I agree. That's what that's called what the Navi calls mitzvat anashim milumada. It's uh, that mu- much of our observance is a habit of. Uh, I, like any other human habit that is learned by rote, mitzvat anashim ilumada, or what the Navi says in Yeshayahu that we read in the morning of Yom Kippur. What kind of a fast is it just to not eat and drink and to bend over your head like a, like a bush and, and, and to outwardly humble yourself when in reality you're, you're clinging to the same unjust behaviors and practices that you were... Uh, you know, that got you to this point in the first place. And then you wonder, why is God not responding to my tzom? Right? That's the, uh, that's what the Navi talks about in Yishayahu. And Yishayahu says, well, a true tzom is one in which real transformation takes place. Not a day where you, where you just anot adam nafsho. Right? That's what the, that's exactly what the Navi says. Basically, all that we said today is exactly what the Navi says. Because the Navi says, is this a day of fasting? Yom anot adam nafsho? Is it just a day where a person afflicts their soul? That's all it is, meaning a person abstains from food and drink. That's all that a fast is. That he bends his head over like a bulrush, right? Halachof ke'agmon rosho. Right? It's a, it, it, is, that what the, uh, is that what a desirable day to God looks like? A day that you just torture yourself? No. A day of tzom is supposed to be a day that that animates the people, that moves the people towards a more just and principled and a truthful way of existence. And if it's not that, that's not a real tzom. And this is really what the, the halakha is formulated in a way to convey to us exactly what Yishayahu was, uh, was lamenting about. In other words, it's trying to teach you that a, a tzom is not yom anot adam nafsho. It's not mainly a day and that a person afflicts himself. That's not the essence of the day. And it's interesting that we go about, we assume, even in our study of the halakha of Tanit, that that's what it's going to be. But even though the Navi says, why do you think, you know, 
Uh, it, it, why do you think this is a tzom? Yom anot adam nafsho, etc., etc. That's not what a tzom is. A tzom is a day organized around disrupting the patterns of injustice in the society and returning to the principles of Torah in a genuine way. That's the goal of the tzom. So the fact that you afflicted yourself and you feel really religious about it is not a uh, is not really uh, has nothing to do with the uh, uh, to, with the essence of what a fast day is. Now and and it's amazing because then you look at the halacha how the halacha formulates it as a yom tzom that has a particular objective and you realize this is exactly what it's supposed to be, meaning this this halacha fits perfectly with what Yeshayahu and Navi is saying that a tzom can't just be a day of abstaining from food and drink. It has to be a yom of coming closer to God and trying to bridge a gap that we perceive in our relationship with God. So it's perfectly with the Navi's concept of what a tzom really is supposed to be. You know, and I, and uh, let me put you guys as the thing. Okay. And that's the, uh, that's it. Oh, I like the pin on the bottom, wisdom seekers. That's pretty good. So any thoughts, any uh, further just, uh, th further observations? I, uh, I think I just have one very relevant. If you look at Sudhyalik, it's the first, let's say, like, look at some of the sources you point to, like, look at the way the Ramam maps it out or where he places that line, or to kind of give you, like, a, a lens through which to look at the Sudhyalik. Or is it kind of like the other way around where we first try to hit it straight on and then afterwards try to see the way colors it? Well, you know, it's a good methodological question. I find that um, I'll just tell you from my personal experience, and it has no uh, bearing necessarily on anyone else's, but my um, my personal experience has always been that some I'll I'll be bothered by certain basic things about a subject and I'll start to think about them and I'll start to consider an alternative way of, of thinking about them. And then I will suddenly see so many other problems that can be solved by the introduction of a new idea. Now, a lot of the new ideas that I get so are not really new, meaning knowing the Rambam and knowing the Tanakh gives you a framework that you draw from in terms of a meta framework, a broad framework of kola Torah kula that you have. So when you have a framework of the Rambam and of the Tanakh to work with, and you then when you then you have, uh, suddenly you'll start to detect something that doesn't fit so well. You'll start to think there must be something more to this. I need to go back and take a look and see if there's something more to this. And, uh, and it opens up doors to you. But it, to me, it's it usually starts out with, I'll ask a very basic question about a halakha that I, rather than taking it at uh, just saying, well, uh, I'm sure somebody knows the answer or this question is too basic to be worth uh, time and investigation uh, that, you know, it, I must be missing something. I'll ask a basic question like, uh, what difference does it make whether a guy did Kabbalah Tanit or he just fasts? So what's the difference? It's the same thing. You know, that very simplistic question really is only answered by the idea of a yom tanit. 
It's not answered by, well, you know, the kavanah of the guy, because the kavanah of the guy who's fasting and didn't make a kabbalah, it could be higher than the guy who did. You don't know what the guy's kavanah is. But once you see that there needs to be a framework of a yom tzom that has a purpose, that has a goal, that the fasting is a part of, then you understand why the Chachamim were insistent there has to be Kabbalah Tanit. So uh, my suggestion is just when you look at a halachic area, ask the most basic questions about the halachic area. I don't know, like uh, I'll give you a random one that just jumped into my mind. You know, why does the Torah tell you to leave a corner of your field called Pe'ah? That seems like a not very nice way to give tzedakah to poor people. Why don't you harvest it for them and give it to them nicely? Why do you uh, why do you leave a corner of it for them to come harvest themselves? You might have the right answer. I don't even know. I'm just saying that's a very basic question, right? It, it, it could be that. It could be about their feeling, or it could be that pe'ah is not so much about me giving the tzedakah. It's about me limiting my control over the what Hashem has given me and recognizing that it really belongs to Hashem. It's not really about giving it to them. It's about me not taking it. Maybe that's what it is. And therefore, the halachot of pe'ah are really about, are about relinquishing my ba'alut over a certain segment of the of the bracha that Hashem gave, limiting my mastery of it. Uh, you know, so, and, and then you take an idea, right? You take an idea like that. Let's say you take that idea. So now you go and you test it out. You say, are there any other halachot that would really make more sense if not, if, if, if leaving a corner of the field was about restricting my ownership? Or are there any halachot that make more sense with the other hypothesis of, uh, of it's about restoring dignity and independence and autonomy to the poor people because it gives them an opportunity to participate in ktsirah. Let's say these are two hypotheses, right? Hypothesis of Jordan is that, and I, you know, is that it's really about empowering the ani to independently participate in ktsirah so that he is able to go and take for himself, as opposed to me handing it to him, that is a greater dignity and empowerment of the Ani. Or is it the suggestion I was making that it's a limiting of my control over the uh, bounty of God? Like I basically limit, I, I cut short the extent to which I uh, am going to exercise control over the bounty of uh, that God gave, right? And I'm just, so I'm not really giving it to the person. Huh? No, they could both be true. But what I'm saying is, or maybe those two ideas actually could merge together. And you could say that, that, that the way that, that the reason why I'm supposed to limit my exercise of control is in order to empower those who are in a disadvantaged position to be able to come. We, we could unite the two ideas. But the point is, once you have an idea, any hunch, right? So now you go and you try to look for halachot that I that substantiate one of these two approaches or that makes sense in light of one of the approaches. And you say, you know what? I must be on to something because here's data that supports the uh, that my hypothesis. 
So once, let's say, for example, I see an idea of Kabbalat Tanit is bothering me. And so I see that the way to solve it is probably by suggesting that there's something bigger here than just abstention from food and drink. And then I start saying, hey, you know, then it sort of fits with why you would say Anenu at night. And then it sort of kind of also fits with the fact that the Rambam emphasizes that the main thing in Tanit is the tefillah and the chatzotzrot and all that, and not really the fasting. And it also fits with the idea that a lot of Rishonim say that, you know, even if you're not fasting, you can say anenu, or you can read from the Torah and all that, because it's independent of the, uh, of the uh, fast. And then, and, then you, and then you have also the fact that, uh, that the Navi says that a tzom is not really about abstaining from food and drink. All of these things sort of become data points to support the idea that there's such a thing as a yom ta'anit independent of the fasting, of the abstention from food and drink, right? So you... What, the pe'ah one? For example... Yeah, Okay, there you go. So that's that's already starting the process of like, that's what I would do in my mind, you know, if I'm trying to pursue one or the other hypothesis, I would try to look for data points like that, that seem to support one or the other hypothesis, you know, or, um, um, yeah, but I would, I, I mean, I would like, I would like to think of a good example. Do you have a good example? I mean, also, one more thing for that. Isn't that how the owner cannot personally choose which money you get to pay up? Right, that's true. But I'm the point that it's less control on his part. If you were to give the Right. He's also supposed to only give it on the corner of the field. So he can't like time it in a way that only certain people will have access or he'll tell them when he's leaving it or something like that. Right. So that would be an example of um, uh, following a line of thought into a, you know, to try to find um data points that support a certain understanding of how the halakha is working in, um, in, a, in a particular instance. I don't know why that jumped into my head, but it just happened to. Um, I think because I remember teaching about pe'ah like literally 20 years ago and somebody was asked me, uh, where did you get that idea? And I didn't really have a good answer for where I came up with that idea. I said, I don't know. I just like looked at the halakha and I, I thought of this idea. And, um, and so when I was trying to give an example of something where I just sort of thought of an idea, that's what came into my head. But I, uh, another, um, another uh, 
I'll give you another example that I, in my own experience, that I followed a similar path was in um, understanding uh, kashrut, for example, that, you know, that, that the framework of kashrut is, uh, if you look at the halachot of kashrut, every time the Torah talks about kashrut, it talks about it in close proximity to a discussion of the Bet HaMikdash and um, something related to korbanot. Almost all of the laws of kashrut are connected in one way or another to laws of, uh, to laws of the uh, Bet HaMikdash. And so for instance, um, for instance, the, uh, the law, what is, a, what is an animal that is not kosher called in the Torah? It's called the Tameh, right? Even though the Tum'an Tarah don't apply to uh, regular ordinary activities. So the idea of using the category of, of Tameh and Tarah seems uh, odd. Or the fact that uh, the idea of Shechita and the idea of Dam relate to the Korbanot, right? The idea of Shechita, it says you should slaughter animals kasher tziviticha. And kasher tziviticha, according to the pshat, is referring to kasher tziviticha bekorbanot, meaning that they would do shechita on korbanot. And when they came into Eretz Yisrael, and they were no longer all bringing korbanot all the time, they started to bring, they started to do shechita on ordinary animals. And then there's also the element that the things that are forbidden for you to eat from an animal are the things that go on the mizbeach. And then there's the idea that just like a korban can't have a mum, you can't eat an animal that's a trefa. So if you keep following this analogy and, and, and you know, to the, you'll keep seeing overlap between the two. And then you notice that every time, literally every time the laws of kashrut are introduced in the Torah, it's, in, it's right next to psukim about avodav the Beit HaMikdash. So after a while, you start to realize that really what kashrut is, is basically making your eating into an avodat Hashem. If the ultimate example of avodat Hashem in the, is, is korbanot, meaning the, the primary example of achila, eating and drinking, which is done, l'shem shamayim, is the eating and drinking of the korbanot that are done as a mitzvah, an honor to God, then taking laws of korbanot and applying it to your own food is saying that when a Jew eats and drinks, it's also an avodat Hashem. They're eating and drinking l'shem shamayim. They're eating and drinking to fulfill the will of God. And then it connects you to the Rambam in Hilchot Teot that talks about how whenever a person eats or drinks or sleeps, everything that they do is really an avodat Hashem if they're doing it l'shem shamayim. Right? It connects you to so many different things. It connects you to the idea that you eat meat on a Yom Tov. And when you eat meat on a Yom Tov, you're supposed to eat korbanot, korbanot shlamim. Right? The ultimate example, fulfillment of the idea of eating uh, meat is when you're eating meat, lismoach lefnei Hashem. That's the ultimate example. You do it on a Yom Tov. The Kohanim do it all the, every day of the year. You do it on the Yamim Tovim. Which is when you're that's supposed to be the only example. Uh-huh. No, I mean, the Torah tells you when you come in, basically what the Torah is telling you is that when you were in, 
the midbar, everything that they brought as korban, everything they brought for me was always korbanot, right? Once you're coming to Eretz Israel and you're going to be spread out, you you might think you can't eat meat at all. But that's you have that's why they, the Torah tells you you're allowed to eat meat. But you have to follow basically what is the procedure of eating meat? Doing everything to the animal that you do to a korban except sacrificing it. Meaning you have to do the shechita just like a korban. You have to drain the blood just like a korban. You have to take out the fats just like a korban. You have to salt it just like a korban. But the only thing you don't do is put those items on a mizbeach. Everything else you do is as if it were a korban. You understand what I'm saying? And then what happens if you go into the Beta Mikdash and you want to slaughter your own animal? Now you have a prohibition called Chulin Ba'azara. Why do you have a prohibition of Chulin Ba'azara? Who cares if you slaughter a non-sacred animal in the, in the Beta Mikdash? The answer is because the whole permission, basically what is all of kosher animal slaughter? It's doing a korban without doing a hakrava. In order to recognize that when I'm taking the life of the animal to sustain my own life, I'm doing it because I am a person who's serving God in my eating of the animal and in my partaking of that, that creature. If I'm in the Beta Mikdash and I have the ability right there to offer a korban and to fully express the idea that my eating is a kavod to Hashem and is l'shem shemayim, l'shem avodata yotzer, why would I not make it as a korban? So then it becomes prohibited to do chulin. Even if I did the chulin 100% kadat v'kadin, it's not, it's not allowed. So when you once you see a thread, you know what I'm saying? You see a thread tying these halachot together. And then you say to yourself, wow, shechita is a type of a creation of a vessel of avodat Hashem. That's really what the shechita is. It's not just killing the animal because it's taken from the framework of korbanot. And then if you look in the Rambam, you see that he says that an oved avodazara that does shechita, it's pasul. Why should that be? If shechita is just a physical action, you could probably get a guy who's really good at cutting the necks of animals to do an excellent shechita. But since the whole purpose of the shechita is to create meat that is going to be a vehicle of avodat Hashem, whether as a korban or as your dinner, therefore it has to be done by a person who is also a person who shares the, uh, uh, the uh, commitment to avodat Hashem. So when you have one thread of halacha, you follow it and it leads you through additional connections until you have a completely new understanding of a whole area of halakha. And the more you dig, the more connections you find. You know, so when I was working that the, these ideas out decades ago or whatever, I started out by noticing one connection, then another connection. And then I would say, well, if this is true, then there must be, and I, literally I would think to myself, if this idea, these ideas are true, there must be a halachan, hilchot shechita, that bears out this idea that I'm saying about what shechita really is, and then you find it, it's there. You find the data point to support the hypothesis. Once the hypothesis becomes supported enough, you can be confident that you're going to find more confirmation instead of less uh, the further that you look.
You know? Yeah, Rabbi. What? Can you do it? All of them right now? That's one of the questions. Why yes. is it that the principle applies to things that I wear and the things that I sew? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, there's a there's a very, very nice Ramban on it in Parshat Kedoshin. Uh, where he talks about the idea of shatnez, it talks about the idea of kilai. Yeah, yeah. See, basar bechalav, basar bechalav is also a mixture. Whenever the Torah is interested in mixtures, it means that it wants you to be aware of certain distinctions, right? When it's when it forbids a when it forbids a mixture, that means it wants to highlight a distinction. So the distinction that it's highlighting, let's say in the case of meat and milk, is it's highlighting the distinction between a dead animal that's being used for your food and a living animal that's sustained by milk that is a creature of God existing in its natural habitat and according to its natural uh, form. So when a person would take milk, which was designed to sustain an animal and would... Uh, use it as a condiment to make the animal tastier, he is basically saying that the existence of this animal has no significance whatsoever, whatsoever other than satisfying my appetites. Because I will even take the very milk that would have sustained this animal and I will use it to flavor my dish of meat as if to say that this animal's existence, this animal existed only to uh, satisfy my desires. And that's why the Torah uses the most extreme example possible and says, don't cook a kid in its own mother's milk, because that would be the ultimate, like, disrespect, so to speak, the ultimate sign that you have no regard for the animal whatsoever as a creature put there by God, is that you take the milk that its mother produced to keep it alive, and you mix it with that to eat it and make it tastier for yourself. So in the, that's the that's the idea in basar b'chalav. Now the the Torah Sheval Peh expands it to all meat and milk because the idea is relevant to all meat and milk. It's not only relevant; it's relevant to any species that consumes milk that produces and consumes milk. Midrabanan they connect it. It's a chicken too for because chickens are slaughtered by shechita, so it could mix them up. You could get confused. That's a derabanan. But in terms, but generally it would apply to any creature that is sustained by milk. But the idea is to recognize a distinction between the animal as a creature of God, that it exists created by God for its own uh, purpose, whatever God's purpose was in creating the cow, versus my interest that Hashem allows me to take the life of the cow and to eat the meat. He allows me to do that, but he doesn't allow me to do that with the idea that the meat, that the animal existed to satisfy my appetites. That would not be the correct understanding. The animal doesn't exist to satisfy my appetite. The animal, animal exists because God said it should exist. But uh, but my, it happens to be that there's a heter for me to satisfy my appetite eating the animal. Now, when it comes to kilayim, let's say, shatnez, let's say, right? Shatnez is mixing of animal with plants, okay? So it's taking wool, which is animal uh, fur, you know, animal hair, 
and it's taking linen, which is flax, it's a plant, and it's and it's combining it together. Now, why is that? It's not the same idea as basar b'chalav, but it's a mixture that blurs, basically takes a distinction that exists in nature, and reduce and and tries to blur or reduce it in the name of human utility. Same, it's a, it's similar in that sense, meaning for my comfort and my you know my personal uh, uh, convenience. I will remove a distinction between plant and animal that God created. Now, that doesn't mean that in every area we don't do that all the time. We eat meat and vegetables together. We do all kinds of things with uh, plant and animal. But when the Torah takes a particular instance, it wants to highlight the distinction for you. That's why it's a chuk, by the way. Chukim are by nature not exhaustive, meaning the reason behind the law and the law are not coextensive. The reason is to teach you an idea to realize that there's that plant and animal are not the same and that you should understand there's an order and a hierarchy in nature. The Torah highlights it by using the example of shatnez, where a person would be tempted, which is a common framework in which a person would blur those distinctions by preventing us, it highlights the distinction. That doesn't mean you have to then highlight the distinction in every single thing that you do. It, it's, a, it's to teach you a lesson through that one example. That's how the chukim often work. The chukim often work by giving you an example to teach you an idea, not demanding that you take that idea and apply it beyond what the chuk requires. Because once the idea is internalized in your mind, you will see the reality. You don't need additional uh, reinforcement. What? Meaning, meaning the idea that plant and animal should be uh, are two different categories, and that in general, one of the things that Torah wants to do is to highlight that there's an order in the creation. It's not just random atoms that fell together in a kind of an accidental way, and that everything is really the same, the same stuff. There's a there are different principles of order in creation. There are animals, there are plants, there are inanimate things. And to make these distinctions is important to, under, to be able to attune us to the reality. So when the Torah gives you a chok, let's say, and says, don't wear shatnez to highlight for you the idea that there's a difference between plant and animal, okay? That doesn't mean that therefore you have to take that idea and say in every single area of my life, I'm going to separate the, between the plant elements and the animal elements. That would mean coextensive, meaning that the reason, the reason is a universal reason. So therefore I should apply it to every single uh, aspect of my life. No, the Torah just wants to teach you the idea with one example. Once you have the idea from the chok, now you use that understanding in your, in your study of the reality and you don't need it to be manifesting, you're not allowed to make chicken with vegetables because you're mixing, uh, uh, you're mixing plant and animal. You know, it wouldn't be like that. Yes. Is that why, in the context of sport, you're more about the wear What? What? In the context of sport, like it's sport, you're allowed to wear Right. Of course. So is that you're in the context in which you're not going to? 
God's ordering of nature, so we don't have to. Because since those, right, because since those mitzvot, since the Big Day Kehuna and the, uh, and the tzitzit are designed to highlight the, the, uh, the Bria and the Borei Olam, it doesn't matter that it's made from Shatnes. In fact, Davka, they make it from Shatnes because the Torah tells you, the Torah is trying to show you something very important by making exceptions. For example, you have like, uh, like the, there's a Rashi that says, oh, there's, you know, on one hand, it says, it says, it says, but then it says, Right? This is uh, this is a Rashi in the Aserta Debrot. On one hand, the Torah tells you, don't uh, don't do Malachan Shabbat, but you bring Korbanot on Shabbat. You're, you're being Mechalil Shabbat in the Bet HaMikdash every Shabbat. On one hand, it tells you, don't uh, marry your brother's wife, but then you have Yibum. On one hand, it tells you, don't wear Shadnez, and then Tzitzit is shatnez if you have tchelet with a linen garment, and uh, and the big day kehuna are shatnez also, right? So how does it work? So you see that what the Torah is trying to show you is that a mitzvah is not not to make the mitzvah into an idolatry. In other words, why is the mitzvah value because it's because it's commanded by Hashem in certain circumstance. But if Hashem commands you otherwise in a certain circumstance, that's also the Ritzon Hashem. You can't reduce the Ritzon Hashem to particular form. So because he said you can't have Shatnez, you'll say, well, I can't wear the Big Day Kiona because it's Shatnez. What are you talking about? God said to make the Big Day Kiona with the Shatnez. So it's not shat, It's not an Isur. Shat, it's not that the physical combination of wool and linen is taboo. It's that you're not allowed to wear it when it's against God's will. But when it's in accordance with God's will, because it's actually heightening your awareness of God, then it's okay. Right? And and, and that's part of, in other words, Dafka, the Torah does that. Like, uh, you know, the, we, we bring Korbanot on Shabbat, doing a million melachot in the Beit HaMikdash on Shabbat, every Shabbat, and Yom Kippur, tons of Korbanot. How could it be? Because why is melachah prohibited? Because God commanded you it was prohibited in order to teach you that Hashem created the universe, right? The, and, and, and rested on the seventh day. Not because melacha is a taboo, but because not, a, not doing melacha teaches you something and highlights your and, and raises your awareness of malchut shamayim. If God commands you on the very same day to do korbanot, so that's also raising your awareness of malchut shamayim and fulfilling the ratzon Hashem. Don't think that it's the form that becomes an, an entity in its own right. It's the purpose that sanctifies the form. That's a way of of what? But this idea does away with a lot of like magical thinking. Yeah, how so? Instead of assuming there's inherent, like an inherent problem with uniting these two things, we're saying, no, no, it's not in the item itself that there lies the problem, it's in the message that it sends. So if God were, if were to send a different message, or if God were designated to not be forbidden, then that item, which in one context would have been in this context is entirely in its love. Meaning, so you, you won't place as much significance on the item itself the as having right. some magical ability or some or some negative consequence for being united rather than just focus on the meaning of it. Right. Or like like when it says like Khilul Shabbat of Pikuach Nefesh. Right? Same. It's it's not that, oh, I'm violating Shabbat doing Pikuach Nefesh. No, it's it's just as much fulfilling the, the, the will of God to save the life on Shabbat as it is to abstain from Malachan every other case. 
or a person has to eat on Yom Kippur to save their life. The same Hashem that was commanded you to fast on Yom Kippur commanded you to eat if it's Yikoch Nevers, that's it. You're attaching, and people, have, especially older people, have a very hard time with eating on Yom Kippur if they have to, even if they have to. Why? Because they attach a taboo feeling to the idea of eating on Yom Kippur. It's not related. To the, it's not related to Avodat Hashem, where they would understand they would they wouldn't have the emotional attachment. They would understand that they have to do whatever the will of God is. That's the Avodat Hashem. It seems like a lot of the sects of Yahadut that were people's feet fell into a lot of Yeah, very much. They were very obsessed with purity and impurity, also. Yeah. That stands from the sphere of the day as having something very. Rabbi, in, in, in our class, we discussed, uh, we mentioned yesterday about the Navi at certain times, at certain, uh, certain junctures, like Eliyahu and Makana, they take that liberty or they seemingly take that liberty into their own hands. Right. They get to uh, uh, supersede mitzvah with something that they feel is, is burdened with time. Uh, so it seems like something that's going to be. Liberty that God can, can exercise. You mean, why can, are you asking like why the Navi can do that? I'm asking, like, like when you mentioned it yesterday, I didn't want to ruin the flow, but how, how can the Navi make that, uh, you know, feel that like he's on a level that he can, he can supersede a divine command uh, to accomplish a certain goal? His mind is not God's mind. Even if he's relaying God's message, he's doing it on his own accord. Right. It comes together. That's why I had mentioned it, it. It seems to come together with the idea of the Nisim, just like the Navi has the ability to uh, because the Navi and this is generally an idea in, in Nevoah that the Nevi'im are not uh, are not primarily focused on the on the Divrei Torah and the Halakha. They're primarily focused on the on the purpose of the Torah. So like that's why they will, let's say, they focus on the themes of the values and the philosophical ideas behind the Torah more than on the on the halachot of the Torah. And uh, that's why I always said, like, people always say, oh, you know, it says, David didn't really sin. It was just, uh, you know, technically, Bacheva wasn't married and all of that, right? So the question is, why do they say that? They say that because why is he considered to have committed adultery? Because philosophically and morally, he committed adultery. In other words, the Navi is operating in the framework of philosophy and values, not in the framework of halakha. And Navi's job is to promote the values. So in a situation, the, just like the Navi can create an exception in the laws of nature to further knowledge of God, he can also create an exception in halakha to further knowledge of God when he sees that uh, it's warranted. That's one of the tools that he's given at his disposal. The assumption yeah, is that if you are a Navi, you're not going to abuse that. It's not right. It's not that we're saying that the Navi quote-unquote, knows what Hashem wants necessarily. What we're saying is that the Navi is charged with a mission of leading the people to Yediat Hashem. 
if he sees that in a particular case, it will be a benefit to the people because of whatever extenuating circumstance to uh, bring a korban outside the Beit HaMikdash uh, and, and bend the rule of the Torah in order to do that, he's entitled to do that for the sake of his mission. That's one of the tools that's given to the Navi in his mission. But that doesn't mean that he's going to do it, you know, uh, without due uh, consideration. It doesn't even mean that Hashem gives them a specific permission to do that. It means that Hashem gives them the right when he sees fit to achieve his mission to make an exception in a halakha. He can't change the halakha. In fact, the Rambam says if a Navi comes and says he changed the halakha, he's chayav mitah. Navi sheker, for sure. Only if he says in this one case, because of et lasot lashem, we can break a rule because it's greater benefit to the avodat Hashem of the klal that they break this rule in this one case, then it's allowed. But what gives him permission to do that? The fact that he's a navi, like, that's, what, yeah, what that's part of. There are two sets of laws. I represent the Dasmara, and therefore, in this particular case, this halakha should be better. The laws of this, just like the laws, there are two sets of laws that we operate in. We, we operate in laws of nature and we operate in laws of Torah. And in both cases, the Navi can uh, can implement exceptions in order to bring people to Yediyat Hashem. In the in the case of uh, in the case of the Das Torah person, Halivai that they were doing it uh, to facil- to further that you know Yediyat Hashem. If they were, maybe maybe we could get behind it. Usually, it's not for that purpose, but um, it's a. Uh, you know, in, in most of those cults, it's usually cults where the where the guy says, "Oh yeah, God told me that I can be with married women and that uh, I can do this." It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not furthering Yediyat Hashem. It's like a David Koresh type of situation for those of you who remember him. Yeah. All right. So what we're gonna in uh, eight o'clock or it's eight o'clock my time. One o'clock your time. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Maybe one ten or one. Okay, that's fine. Give you guys an hour because you had a short you had a short break before. Thank you, and, and if and if you want to do if you want to do a shiur for everybody, you had mentioned maybe doing a dinner. Uh, oh, so I want to speak for that. Uh, we're thinking, and I have to speak for guys also. We haven't really discussed it openly, but we're thinking maybe Thursday night. Um, Thursday night, 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 and then have the to all of us, our wives. Okay, sure. Is there a specific topic you want to do, or just something general, like about the learning and the meaning of it? And like, let me know. Okay, sounds good. Nine thirty is good. I'm I'm up by that time anyway. Uh, over here, so. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. See you next. All right. Yes.